Hello, everybody. Turn us up in my headphones, Charles. Turning it up. <laughs> wow. Hello, hello, hello. Well, you know, after 160-something times, you got to find new ways to keep it fresh. Not just for the listeners, but for my own sanity as well. And hello, everyone. <laughs> Welcome back. What about my sanity? <laughs> and yours. You know what? I, I do it for you, Dylan, of course. Oh, thanks, Charles. I feel like if, as long as I'm entertaining you, I feel like the show will be entertaining. So that's always the you goal. You always entertain me. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Welcome, listeners, to another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. My name is Charles, and with me today is my lifelong friend and co-host, Dylan. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friend Charles. I'm ready to talk a little fantasy with my friend as well, Dylan, and not just any fantasy today, because today we continue our, I don't even know how long of a journey, it's been at least six months, maybe longer, that we have been reading the First Law Universe books. We've read the First Law Trilogy. We've read all three standalones. We even read Sharp Ends, the short story collection from the world of the First Law. And today marks the beginning of our next and final journey of the First Law, and that is The Age of Madness. We are discussing the first book in the Age of Madness trilogy today, and that is A Little Hatred. And Dylan, I've got so many opinions. I think we just got to rush right to the uh, spoiler warning. I will just say, incredible book, highly recommend reading, read all the other First Law books up through publication order to this one, and you will not be disappointed some of his best work yet dylan as you kept telling me over and over again it's i was kind of nervous going into it Mm -hmm. knowing that you had said that and i enjoyed it thoroughly it's different and it's interesting and it's it's not only fun to watch the first law world grow and change and develop but it's fun to watch abercrombie as an author do the same and all these characters too so highly recommend wow well said, Charles. Um, I'll, I, I'll, before I get into a spoiler warning, I want to say I am so pumped that you feel that strongly <laughs> about this this book because I have you described it as an evolution. That's always how I've thought of Abercrombie's work as mm-hmm. we move. It's been quite a journey from the blade itself all the way up to a little hatred, and, and we're just going to keep it rolling. But now that we are up to a little hatred... I do have to give my spoiler warning that we will not be holding back from spoiling all the previous installments in the First Law universe. So Mm -hmm. that means uh, we consider the original trilogy, uh, all three of the standalones, and Sharpens to be fair game here. And we... We aren't going to go out of our way to spoil any of those things, but Mm. we certainly aren't going to hold back. So if you don't want any of those previous First Law World books spoiled for you, then now is a good time to turn this down in your headphones before we get into this. 
Thank you for that, Dylan. And before we get too far into it, can we just, like, I don't know what it was, but there were so many deaths at the end of this book that just, oh, they put me in a mood, like, watching, like, the Jazal death scene, that was, Mm. like, that hit me in a weird way, even though the scene itself wasn't anything really to, to write home about, that was a shocking moment for sure. And then to see, man, I don't know, there's so so many of these moments. I was like, this world is changing faster than I'm ready for it to. <laughs> it's, I, I wasn't ready to see old man Chazal and and ready for him to go. And and uh, yeah, it was just, it was sad. But uh, it, it's, life must go on, right? That's just how it goes. And, you know, scale also, RIP. But we'll, we'll get into all of yeah. that. Um, I just wanted to make sure I acknowledge that in the beginning. Yeah. Wow, Charles, you're jumping right to the Giselle death, huh? <laughs> I mean, as huge fans of the original trilogy and as people who, you know, we see all of Giselle's faults, but as people who have always thought he he goes through a lot of growth and even has continued to through Age of Madness and settling into his role mm-hmm. as this uh, almost this this figurehead that knows he's a figurehead and in that sense is able to serve the role he needs to to keep stability in the union mm-hmm. i think and you know does his best to be as good a father as he possibly could be you know it is sad to see him go and in such an almost inglorious way that is so very true to the joe abercrombie voice to mm. not hold back there with how how just all goes down <laughs> yeah yeah and even there was the line of like you know uh where orso was like oh my father always said that you know common decency is not something like that a king can have you know something yeah. along those lines because there were just all these people gathered around his naked dead body like poking and prodding him uh, you know so yeah it's true and uh it's the end of the times for sure so I didn't know we'd be jumping in so quickly, but can I read a last argument of Kings? Oh, quote, Charles, okay. To, book three of the first the... law trilogy. All yes. right. So this is during that scene in the chapter behind the throne near the end of the original first law trilogy okay. where Jazal is getting a talking to from Baez about the way that things <laughs> yeah. work and Giselle's origins and there's a fast house kind of stuff. And uh, he, uh, Baez says to Giselle, but if you insist on being difficult, if you insist on going your own way, well, there are other options. Even kings die unexplained deaths, thrown by a horse, choked on an olive pit, long falls to the hard, hard cobblestones, or simply found dead in the morning. Oh, you're suspecting foul play here, Dylan? (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) Baez is very quick to say long live the king. Yes, he is. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And yeah, I'll just, uh, yeah, he goes on to say life is always short for you insects, but it can be very short for those who are not useful. So, mm. I mean, who's to say 
if Baez was or wasn't involved in Giselle's sudden death, just unexplained being found dead in the morning. Yep. <laughs> but he did mention that that is a possible route that a king could die once they've outlasted their usefulness. So that's all. That's um a very deep pull there for a quote. I love it. And you were well prepared. So thank you for that. I mean, yeah, I mean, Bias said, long live the king, you know, of course he's involved in it in some way. N- nothing happens in the union without Bias knowing about it and pulling the strings one way or the other. So we just don't know why, Dylan. We just don't know why. And we'll, and I, I'm looking forward to reading uh, future installments to see how this plot thickens here. But let's just go through the characters now and see who we can talk about. We may as well, while we're on the topic of good old Jazal, and we say goodbye to Jazal lovingly, uh, and we look back on all the fond memories we had of his perfect chin and him playing cards with his buddies, fighting in the contest. His good old buddy, Logan Ninefingers, you know, all those things that happen. We can turn the page over to his son, the next generation. Should we talk about Crown Prince Orso? Yes, let's talk about Crown Prince Orso. And I think of Orso, there's a phrase I brought up before in reference to First Law. I think it was Lattice Law way back. Uh, That's a psychological term called affluenza. Yes. And that's defined here as a psychological malaise supposedly affecting wealthy young people, symptoms of which include a lack of motivation, feelings of guilt, and a sense of isolation. And I I love Orso as a character. And he, to me, is the face of affluenza at the start of this book. He's dealing with all of that. He has no motivation to do much of anything. He is just kind of squandering his life. But he does feel guilty about it, like he is supposed to be doing something more because he is the crown prince. Right. Uh, But he's there's these moments where he talks about how he tries to not let anyone down and therefore he ends up letting everyone down. Yeah. I mean, there's even like his story opens where he's at a public execution. He's like, maybe I should stop this. And then he just doesn't and they get hanged and he's like, eh, I tried (laughs) or I did try, you know? So it's like a funny way to introduce him. He's in this weird in-between flux state, like you said, this affluenza where he... You can kind of tell he means well, but he's also like spoiled and lazy at the same time. So he never actually accomplishes anything. At least that's how we yeah. he gets started. And I love the scenes with him and his mother, Queen Therese, <laughs> like when they go back and forth. Like, it's fun mm. to see Therese take a take like the spotlight in this book. You know, she's yeah, um, she's just absolutely dominating the with her presence and her quick wit and the way she just like tries to get through to Orso and it it there's some of the better scenes of dialogue in the whole in the whole book. I remember where she goes uh people expect a certain amount of indolence in the crown prince. Mm. It was quite winning when you were 17. At 22 it began to become tiresome. At 27 it looks positively desperate. <laughs> Which yeah, uh, pretty much affluenza described. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and 
it is interesting because she takes on a much more central role in this book than Giselle does. Yes. Giselle's kind of in the background. We get a few scenes of them fencing together, but it's really the the tension and conflict is between uh, when in Orso's arc uh, is between Teresa's desire for Orso to get is between Therese and Orso because of Therese's desire for Orso to get married. Mm-hmm. And we know that Orso, not particularly interested in getting married to the folks that are being presented to him because he is in love with another. Oh, boy. And this is... Yeah, Charles. <laughs> so this is Abercrombie's... <laughs> twisted genius at work (laughs) in my eyes where he pretty much if you hadn't yet read the first law trilogy you would probably be like unabashedly invested in this relationship between Orso and Savine. Yeah, you'd be like, what's the like problem? They, they yeah. Seem to, yeah. <laughs> right. They, <laughs> they seem to make up for each other's deficiencies. They seem to get along really well. All these things where it's a relationship that I know under normal circumstances, I would be shipping and rooting for to happen. Right. But having read the original First Law trilogy, we're already aware coming Oh in. gosh, I know. And he doesn't that, spare you on the details and no. he goes into everything so intimately and you're like, "Oh no." I right away I was like, "Joe, no." Yes. <laughs> you sick you sick person. <laughs> I love it at the same time. Like you're brilliant, you're brilliant, but also you're sick. <laughs> well, it's interesting that he plays it straight with those two rather yeah. like for so the sibling or um uh, half sibling reveal is not until way late in the book and this is supposed to be able to stand alone as its own trilogy. Mm-hmm. Like I think from what I've seen Joe I mean, probably Joe just wants people to buy his books. So, uh, but he does present it as, yeah, you could start with a little hatred, and I think you can, but you're missing out on what Joe is really pulling off here, which is making you sit there with these incest moments where the two characters, it's completely unbeknownst to them. Yeah. And it's. Yeah, I mean, I've just never read anything like it. Yeah, and then the dynamic is interesting because, you know, Savine finds out, but never tells Orso. And Orso's just left being like, what the heck? Like, I guess it's just another person that doesn't want to be around me anymore. It's like typical me. But he doesn't, he Mm. still doesn't know. And now Savine, not only does she know what she's done, but she has to, like, keep it a secret from Orso, who she does love. So it's like... Yeah. Such a interesting, twisted, complicated relationship dynamic that's just absolutely fascinating to read. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's interesting because Orso's character growth throughout this book is catalyzed by mostly just trying to be a better person for Savine. He mm-hmm. says Savine makes him want to be a better person. He ends up actually uh, gathering those troops and getting 
the closest thing that we really get in a Joe Abercrombie novel to like a, a heroic moment where he saves her and then he proposes and he's got this whole image in his head of how he's going to be able to turn his life around. And we know that Savine would probably be an amazing queen with her administrative sure, abilities. Sure. And then it's all just <laughs> in the course of one book, we see him go through all that growth growth and then have like not the growth necessarily taken away from him but the the reason being a better person for Savine taken away from him right before he is thrust into a position of having to be the king and take yes. on all this responsibility yes. so we're left it's it's such an amazing arc for Orso I love him as a character too mm-hmm. uh, and uh, where now we're left thinking how is he ever going to meet the demands of him in this king position and if Baez might be involved what does he have in store for Orso that it was time to put Orso on the throne yeah exactly I mean incest aside you can look at Orso's arc and be like this guy's doing great he's like he's learning how to like make a meaningful relationship with savine yeah and he's actually interested in adopting more responsibility and he wants to raise an army and he wants to help the rebellion he wants to be a part of it all and and at the end of the day, you let's in Abercrombie fashion, it's like anyone on the quest for personal growth is gonna <laughs> is gonna be in for a bad time. And like you said, the timing of everything is so twisted. Like right at his most like right at his tipping point, his most vulnerable when it's like he could be the great king or he could just be totally revert back to himself is when Savine hits him with that with that letter. I read that letter, I was like, oh Joe, that is so cold. Let me pull up the letter here. Because uh, oh, yeah. I have it highlighted in my notes, and I was just so shocked, and um, I, I was one of those things where it was, oh, my answer must be no. I would ask you not to contact me again, ever, Savine. <laughs> That's not what he gets. So savage. it's like ah, it's so savage. And then yeah, to see her, you know, oh my gosh, yeah, so. Like you said, great timing the way his arc played out. And it's like kind of tragic because what I like about Orso is throughout the whole thing, Joe Abercrombie does hint at his potential. Like he is a caring guy. He is like Mm -hmm. an empathetic guy. Like when he's fighting a duel with his father and he's like, oh, he's obviously setting up like, you know, a feint here in this fencing match. But I better let him like do it and... To, just to make him happy and like he has these qualities about him where he he could be a very good ruler it's just circumstance out of his control is just beating him down constantly so it's like will he ever get to learn his lessons he's, he's like in this environment it's, where it's almost impossible for him to learn his lessons <laughs> yes and it's interesting because i it's hard not to compare or so to his dad, Jazal, because mm-hmm. he's got so much Jazal in him. Because Jazal had a ton of potential as well in all of those mm-hmm. ways. And th- that being said, Jazal at least had something to strive for when mm-hmm. he was a like. Yes, he was pampered. Yes, he was privileged. But he actually had felt some desire. Like I have to win the contest to prove myself. 
all this kind of stuff, which gave him motivation. But the insecurity of trying to prove himself, I think, was what underlied his his narcissism. While Orso doesn't have that narcissism, nor does he have that striving, right. he's kind of already in this like late stage Gisol type uh, period yeah. of just being like, what, like, what am I supposed to do from here? And how can I trust any of these relationships as authentic? And it's it's interesting though because he in his own. I guess, like, uh, suffering, he's able to develop that empathy that you're talking about, Charles. And he has uh, this, like, natural wit and Mm -hmm. desire to do something more because I feel like once you personally have everything, all you really can do is look outward as what you can try to give to other people. And he does desire that. It's just hard for him to figure out... Yeah. how he's supposed to do that and he's left uh yeah he's left in a tough sitch right tough indeed and i think it's good to kind of compare him to savine because mm. which we are moving on to savine now because okay. with savine she's born into circumstance as well i mean she's the daughter of glockta who everyone knows runs the show the most feared man in the union and all that yet she is very enterprising and domineering and and uh it's so funny i can read her early dialogue and be like oh my god she's in for a hard lesson herself i can just tell Mm. uh because there's even the moments like during the rebellion where you know the insurrection she's like how could she have expected this an armed insurrection like that was like in her monologue it's like who could have seen this coming meanwhile she's like knowingly impoverishing entire communities and like bankrupting people and making unsafe working conditions then she goes how could this happen (laughs) at the same time it's brilliant character work and again it comes to abercrombie's um willingness to commit to a character perspective to a storyline without having to like remind us of details or contextualize their thoughts it's like maybe if she had seen this coming she could have prevented the thing it's like no she's literally asking how could this happen when it's so obvious how it happened she's just so clueless things were going so well for her that the fact that something's going bad just doesn't compute in her brain even though she's super smart you know it's it's like through circumstance yeah well well said charles it's interesting to see despite that despite that privilege there's been a lot of hard lessons and even though she's not biologically glocked as child she is glocked raised by <laughs> or sand and glocked and it's it's interesting to see a lot of how you f- the glocked elements in her or i guess like sand elements i should say because uh, her last name's Glockta too. So it's, it, although the name Glockta will always elicit uh, or evoke a different person than, than her, <laughs> yeah. she'll be severe. Uh, but that being said, uh, when we're first introduced to her, she's big on this idea that the chapter's called, uh, I believe it's Keeping Score. I'll double check that. That sounds Yeah, Keeping right. Score. 
And it's basically just she engages in these business ventures just for the sake of like demonstrating her dominance, winning and beating yeah. people. Yeah. And it's a great. Yeah, Where have we seen that before? Jazal. <laughs> well, it's that's interest. That's an interesting observation. Obviously, he's her, her biological dad. I thought of the so I'll and read the, the introduction quote, to Jazal was him just beating people in cards and taking their money for fun. That's yeah, yes, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I think it, Savine is actually obs- right. smart and educated. Oh, of and, <laughs> where Jazal is just mean, but. <laughs> Um, they share DNA so it's like interesting to see that where their similarities can be through nurture you know I mean nature not nurture yes so that's it's very interesting that you because I was thinking more of it as Glockta's influence on her I'll I'll read the quote which is uh, she goes why what a pompous crowd they are Beyond a point I passed long ago. I don't even care about money. Savine flicked the brim of her hat and farewell. But how else is one to keep score? Which I just absolutely love after she's got this savage moment of trying to, uh, like, yeah, just trying to beat someone into giving her a bigger share of the profit. And I guess I was thinking of the Glockta moments in the original first law trilogy where he's like basically saying i'm i'm not afraid to die but i refuse to lose yeah. so yeah <laughs> i think that yeah it's an interesting combination of wanting to show dominance over others in this way of Jazal playing cards has that like that influence mm-hmm. over savine through nature and then the nurture is more of the like genuine ambition uh, that yeah, like is more sand and clock. Always be scheming, be never like, lose. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. But it manifests in this almost... <laughs> she's a powerhouse, uh, Savine, if if nothing else. She might be privileged and not know the... Like, not have the same level of empathy that we might be hoping or awareness about the world outside of her own life. But she is an extremely competent person. Right. And what I love is like what you are introduced to her in her own POV and you are familiar with this trope of just someone Mm. that's super confident, super successful, knows all the answers put together. Like you see this and then like it's, there's a great quote that I had grabbed, but it's not from her POV it's from Vic's POV. Yeah. When um when Vic sees Savine. And then this is how Vic describes Savine now. Mm. Not a hair of Savine's eyebrows, not a thread of her clothes, not a speck of her powder was out of place, even in the heat. Also porcelain perfect, it was a surprise whenever she moved, talked, breathed like ordinary humans. She wore a ridiculous little sword with jewels on the hilt. She wore a tiny pointless hat fastened with a crystal pin. She fluttered a fan made from fillets of iridescent seashells gracefully back and forth, back and forth. She had a nest of golden braids, which only a dunce could have imagined was her real hair or anyone's Mm. real hair. Had there been any justice in the world, she would have looked absurd, but Vic knew well, there was no justice and she looked spectacular. (laughs) That's... (sighs) 
the line. Can you believe that? It's like we wow the. Ugh, it's the little details that sell it for me, right? It, it's it's the idea of things like this pointless little sword, this obviously fake wig. In Savine's head, it's like, oh, these beautiful wigs that make me look gorgeous from real hair, like all this stuff. And it's like, oh, the sword that she made with these jewels cost more than this whole village. And then you have someone like Vic, who like you know grew up in the school of hard knocks looking at Savine and thinking it's all ridiculous. So to see the two compared is where Abercrombie really, really shines, I think. It's such like an Abercrombie thing to be so in one person's head and then be in another person's head and see the character a little bit differently. And you start to see these inconsistencies and you start to actually try and figure out who is this character really? Like, we know who they think they are. We know who other people think they are. And it it just becomes fascinating to see how it all goes comes together I, I don't know and, and Sabine is one of those ones where she's so confident in the beginning of this book that it was just interesting to me to see that there were like cracks in that which I wasn't really expecting but makes total sense in an Abercrombie book oh yeah and another moment like that for Savine. I don't want to do her dirty and just talk about her like <laughs> her wake-up calls and stuff because she has a lot of really triumphant moments and qualities as well but uh, she does get a wake-up call when she's fighting against Gorst or at least fencing against Gorst we have that that chapter fencing with father oh yeah that's a great chapter such a great Glockta moment too like Glockta gets some great character moments he does he's pretty much a lot I'm trying to think if this is fair to say I think him and Dogman I guess get the best moments of any of the original point of views i like shivers but um yeah it's true yeah i guess i was thinking the original first law trilogy shivers gets some fantastic moments for sure Uh, his relationship with rico which i'm sure we'll get into more is Mm -hmm. is heartwarming actually and his moment where he we'll get into it but (laughs) the the savine moment i'm talking about is she's Fencing against who might be the greatest swordsman alive in Gorst. And she's kind of like, hey, like, t- let's take this more seriously. And Glockta is like, oh, I do. he's kind of like, do you really think you want this? And she's like, yeah, of course. And then he basically tells Gorst like, okay, like, go for it like show her what actually happens if you try at this and gorse just freaking demolishes her smash she gets smashed into a wall which is something pretty out there for someone who's lived such a pampered life and this is just a taste of what's to come for her where oh, it's like yeah. there's brutality out there Savine. Oh, there's yeah. more than your like <laughs> as like domineering uh, as you can be yeah. in like a business setting like someone can just walk up to you and punch you and kill you it's like um there's a line that she says uh during uh like the rebellion in Valbeck where it's like she says, perhaps safety was a lie people told themselves so they could mm. carry on. So these yeah. moments where like Glockta, or not Glockta, um, Gorst 
just overpowers her like she was nothing instantly is her first wake-up call. And then this whole business in Valbrecht was also rather alarming as well. And that's when she said this out loud. Perhaps safety was a lie people told themselves so they could carry on. And as smart as she is, as talented as she is, and even shows moments of compassion and like she has her assistant that she loves and she sticks to her word and saves like that family that was looking out for her um yeah it's she's capable and then she is forming this loving relationship with orso and was even willing to like embrace that that love as well like some good great moments of character it's Still, the fact that, like, how she was raised, the the, the hierarchy in society that she's in. Um, there was another one that, uh, let's see here. Uh, I was looking for another quote about her. Oh, yeah. Someone called her, let's see. Uh, so we have Rosino, uh <laughs> describing her. And he goes, uh, a most acid, arrogant, an impolite young woman, the exploitative avarice of the modern age personified, scarcely to be preferred to her father as a dining companion. <laughs> wow. Which is a bit extreme, but this idea of exploitation in the modern age is certainly like a new theme that's being introduced along with this new setting that is this industrial age for the first law world. So with the embrace of this industrial age kind of progression in the first law world and the setting, which is a super interesting thing that we haven't really touched on yet. The fact that this is no longer really a swords and sorcery fantasy. It's, it's getting more into factories and mills and things like that. Um, And Abercrombie then rightfully so started to weave in some of the themes that come with industrialization which is like workers rights and exploitation of the rich and and things like that and it's so it just all kind of layers on top of it of each other and as much as we love to talk about character i just think with savinas especially it's interesting to bring up the setting that these characters are in as well yeah the world is changing uh, charles mm-hmm. and uh even the magi know that you gotta be willing <laughs> yeah, to buys is showing up in a sharp got, suit yeah <laughs> he's like where's your, your where's your where's your um magic like your staff he's like oh somewhere <laughs> i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is interesting Baez's appearances are interesting because we just have the the character's the older characters like Glockta and Jazal being like, stay the F away from <laughs> that person. <laughs> Where we have Glockta telling Savine very early on, hey, like Valen and Bulk do not get anywhere near that bank. And it's it's interesting. I think we don't really get a ton of... I guess payoff to what Baez's involvement may or may not be in the Age of Madness uh, through just a little hatred, but it's 
all the hints are being laid down and it'll be interesting to see where things go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it, I'm very fascinated because, you know, with, with Savine, she wasn't able to, you know, she had that truth bomb dropped on her, which is a fantastic scene, by the way. Artie also, another character that just like, word for word is just so incredible from the first yeah. law like some of my favorite scenes were already scenes in the first law and now here yeah. we are with her again as a mother now as an older woman it's and she just shines it's really incredible but the scene that i really love is when she breaks the news to savine and it's like you're not hearing me savine her mother looked up her eyes were wet but there was a hardness in them too a hardness savine had not often seen she announced she pronounced each word with stern precision you cannot marry prince orso and then she goes on and what, 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 what it's like savine's mother squeezed her eyes shut and it Tear black with powder streaked her cheek. He's your brother. Oh, it's like the scene was crazy. It's like, oh my god, Artie. And you know what Artie went through and how she was kind of like, yeah. almost like taking it, not really taken advantage of, but you know, like she was with Giselle and then Giselle got thrust away into from by by Baez and she was kind of left behind. And like the fact that she's facing all of that now. It, it carries so much weight in so few words. It's a really impactful scene. That it is. And we know that Savine's reaction to it is a... She's very bitter about her mother's role in all of this, her uh, father's role as well. And she does lash out afterward and it's totally understandable from Savine's yeah she screams out some stuff that, that i will way. not repeat yeah. on this show but the quotes right. are wild the quotes are wild and i'm just we're family friendly here so i'm not gonna read it yeah. but boy oh boy does she reflect on what she has done in this book and she has no problem screaming it out to her mother in these moments yes yeah. yeah and it's interesting because we during the what they call it a triumph or whatever she's also lashing out at uh, glockta and we know that she's only been able to live and be born because glockta came up with a really creative solution to marry Artie when right basically he was being told to get her killed so mm-hmm. there would be no savine if Glockta hadn't really thought on his toes and been willing to, uh, I mean, I think he, you know, he, he, he and Artie ended up very happy together. And like, but, he got the better yeah. end of that deal. Let's he be did, real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's probably, well, I mean, they both served each other. And there were moments in, in this book like, where Artie says, I don't regret anything. I'm happy. Oh, yeah. Like she, like, I'm, those moments are in this book. So it's like, it was a mutually beneficial thing. It was a brilliant idea. And it was a connection when reading the first Law trilogy for the first time. I like right. never saw coming. Never even considered it the first read through. I remember that development being like, of, of course, of course. But I would have never thought of that. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting with all the history to put it together and you 
you empathize with Savine, but uh, because she's had to find out that her whole life has basically been a lie, and of course she's pissed. And at the same time, you empathize with Artie and Sandanglockta because they did their absolute best with just a crappy situation so it's the beauty of this going across generations that joe abercrombie has done with going from the first law trilogy through the standalones and into the age of madness where Mm -hmm. uh, you you get to see the complexity in familial circumstances uh, where all parties involved are just trying their best and still you get these really, really difficult situations. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, uh, a tough one for Savine, tough one for Artie, tough one for Glockta. Tough ones all around. And before we move on to the next character, I, I found a quote up from Orso that I want to say. It's really quick. Because remember we when we were talking about the Jazal chapters and how Abercrombie's just narration was absolutely scathing of Jazal when he was at his most insufferable. Uh, yeah. There's this scene, and then of course the chapter's called The Man of Action. And the joke there is that Orso never really did anything. He just wore a nice suit. So this is him like greeting the troops for the first time. And he's like, uh, he returned their salute with a flourish. He had been perfecting in front of the mirror. He had to admit he liked wearing a uniform. It gave him the novel feeling of being a man of action. (laughs) (laughs) And then it goes on to say, perhaps because for once he felt he had done the slightest something towards deserving it when someone paid him a compliment. But it's just this idea of like, it gave him the novel feeling of being a man of action. Like this guy's just been doing nothing his whole life. (laughs) It's like... The idea of being a man of action is this novel experience. It's very funny. And he didn't even earn it. He just put on a uniform. It's, it's just yeah. It's more of that wonderful, wonderful Abercrombie prose. <laughs> Definitely, Charles. Well, who's up next among these characters? We can take our pick. Uh, I say while we're in this network of people let's just go ahead and go to the next one who in my opinion is none other than leo dan brock oh leo dan brock everybody this is another interesting character here the lion <laughs> the young I, I, lion. The young lion, and I love throughout this. You have the young lion, and then you have what was it? The wolf, but it was the um, was he just called the wolf? <laughs> I don't remember. No, it was um, uh, oh god, the it's not just the wolf. It's um, it's like uh, the jeez, where this is, is an like embarrassing the, moment. I know the great wolf. The, it's the great wolf. Yeah. And so, yeah, these two characters, pretty fascinating to watch them. It's like, these are people who, like, from reading the first law, we've learned these lessons already in Abercrombie's world. Like, we know these kinds of people. And it's so funny to hear both of them think back on the bloody nine as like someone they aspire to be like and it's like the bloody nine fought in the circle the bloody nine like settled scores and it's like even the bloody nine will tell you that those were horrible (laughs) ideas it's like only fools like we know only fools would worship these people so when you have these young guys it's like up history's repeating itself right now it's just so funny to come into this well how many books 
are we in now? We're like eight books deep into this world now. So when we see these characters so green and and novice in this enter this world, we're like, oh, my sweet summer child, you've got a lot to learn. For sure. And we I mean that. I guess I'm skipping ahead here if we go toward fighting in the circle, but might as oh, well. I love That's that moment. Interesting stuff with, yeah, Leo and Stower. And uh, yeah, we just have, <laughs> it's like the same s- pattern playing itself out with young warriors fighting uh, duels to the death over the same land <laughs> that <laughs> it has already been fought over and it's just <laughs> and i think it's just you know everybody's take them the there's new generations that rise up and the old generations even we see uh, finry who is awesome seeing finry mature and become this very powerful uh, figure yeah finry punching up for too. yeah for a long time baez was having <laughs> basically still Oh, running his interests over in Angland well after the death of Leo's father. And yeah, we have though like those people becoming irrelevant as this new generation steps up, but the new generation hasn't learned these lessons that the old generations have. And oftentimes they don't heed the advice of the older generations. So you get these moments like where Leo is is telling the dog man like, oh, yeah, those stories you told me really inspired me. The ones about the bloody nine and fighting in the circle and all the glory. And dog man's like, those were supposed to be warnings, yeah. man. Yeah. Like, yeah. how did you not take the lessons I was clearly delivering to you? But Leo is a thick scold one and he gets himself into... Uh, some serious situations uh, due to that folly. And he's introduced as like a really competent fighter right out of the bat. He's like yeah. barely, uh, he just charges into battle and he's like, we won. And then he like goes to meet with his mother, Finry, who we know from the heroes and we know and love from yeah. the heroes where Baez gives her, you know, the thumbs up. They'll be like, hey, we can make you the governess of England if you play your cards right. And what happened is she's just like that was a dumb thing to do like you you risked everyone's lives your friend is dead when we just had this plan of tactful retreating and you you captured a worthless piece of land and then he's like what what that's crazy and then even when it and comes to flag. Down, yeah and a flag <laughs> yeah he's got the flag yeah that's right i forgot about the flag oh my god yeah, yeah that was the whole that was the whole point of that he's like we have the their standard. flag yeah the standard yeah. oh god yeah that's true i forgot about that yeah the flag and uh even like and him and stower are obsessed with it <laughs> yeah they're both it's like they both think it's such a big deal <laughs> Right, right. And then even like when it comes to women, there's a scene that I just like had highlighted from reading where Leo's like, um, it was then Leo made up his mind that he was interested. I think this was in Riker. And he's like, Antwop, yeah, Rika. Antop knew all about women. If he was impressed, everyone would be. So it's just like one of the thousand examples of like, oh, uh, other people are circling around this right now. What? Uh, let me do that too. You know, so he's clearly wandering around aimlessly. <laughs> and if it wasn't for his mother, who knows what kind of trouble he would have gotten himself in a long time ago. But yeah, it's again, it's this 
interesting idea of like the being part of like the the nurture process in these characters you have finry making all these tactical decisions and trying to boss leo around and now leo just like is just walking around being like what are we doing guys like <laughs> what, what what's the yeah. next thing you know it's it's interesting and then of course he's young and arrogant and battle hungry and all these other crazy things that we've had so many characters in this world learn to avoid at all costs yeah but <laughs> but then each new generation has to learn those lessons anew and thinks they know better than the previous generation so that's kind of, I feel like Leo personifies that more than any other character. Maybe Stour as well, but mm-hmm. Leo, there's like an innocence to him in some ways that Stour, Stour comes off much more wicked than Leo, where you're kind of yes. like, ah, it's not shocking that this guy like just wants to like fight and kill people or whatever, but... But it's so interesting that he's Calder's son, too, which is like this idea that like Calder was this perfect schemer and everything. And yet he can't control his own son. You know, like all the layers that are going on in this are so rich and fascinating. I keep saying fascinating, but it's true. It's true. (laughs) It's like super, super interesting. Black Calder, we know from the heroes. (laughs) Yeah, well. It's yeah, it's interesting because Calder and Finry have some stuff in common, and then in terms of their scheming and their logistical master mindness, <laughs> don't think that's a word. But that being said, they they then they both have these children with overinflated egos, and mm-hmm. maybe in part, uh, both of them saw their roles and usefulness as being the person who can do all of the tactical stuff. Mm. Uh, And you kind of got this already, Charles. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas their child, they were like, oh, well now my child can just kind of be the face and uh, be uh, what the, this like figure of glory figurehead that the people need while I do all the stuff behind the scenes. But then, their children didn't learn the lessons of how the sausage gets made, for lack of a better way to put it. And it's like Calder knows how fragile everything is. He's even got that moment, I think, with Sulphur, where it's like, hey, remember that pit we took you to? (laughs) It's like, remember that at any moment, this could all be taken away from you. And meanwhile, his kid, Stour, feels absolutely invincible. Yes. And yeah, and Calder says like he looked like his uh, Calder's wife died, and he's like it looked like his mother, so I spoiled him, and he has oh, some yeah, reflections yeah, yeah. on mm-hmm. that. And then there's uh, even you know Colt, um, uh, the Great Wolf himself, Scour. Yeah, even Scour. is like you're a weak old man, <laughs> and it's like uh, you don't even realize what he's had to do and how much he's risked and how in the in the poo poo he is trying to keep this thing together and keep it clean there Charles. thank you <laughs> thank you it's it, like i never really thought to compare black colder to finry den brock but it like, their story is just as comparable as leo and uh, stour so it's really fascinating yeah. to do that because they both are on the same boat like Caring rendered irrelevant rendered irrelevant that's right that's right despite all their scheming and tactical acumen 
They can't control their own kids, and history is doomed to repeat itself. I'm, I wonder single why. as well. They're and, widowed, both yeah, of them. Yeah, single, ready to mingle, maybe yeah. a little love connection. Yeah, here. maybe. That would be, <laughs> ooh, Charles, that would be quite a love connection. Between, imagine what those oh, two could do they, together. Imagine the fights that they get in. That would, some, <laughs> <laughs> that would be some high level. No one would win in, that, in those debates. <laughs> Except the reader. Yeah, that, that's true. <laughs> Oh gosh, and I wonder also like why why were they fighting each other if they're both in the pocket of Baez? I guess maybe Baez want them to fight, or maybe was that ever explained? There, there is a moment I think Sulfur has a line, and I don't have the quote or anything in front of me where he's kind of like a little bit of I don't know if he says chaos or whatever, but a little bit of like fighting between. The sides are okay. It kind of keeps people distracted and mm. keeps them busy where it's, I think what Baez doesn't want is like actual big picture fighting with huge stakes where the person that he is most concerned about still being in charge is at risk. Right. But I think that, like, like the government he's like built or so and yeah, Jazal or like, He's much more concerned about what's going on there than that something might happen Stour, to Stour yeah. Nightfall. Yeah, right, right. That's well said. Yeah. So they're just like, hey, we're not, we only get involved when it becomes important. And if you guys decide to fight each other right now, we, it's fine. <laughs> it's whatever you and want. And he's been busy. Whenever we get introduced to Baez and a little hatred, he's kind of like, I've been dealing with trouble with my siblings all over the place. Oh, yeah, yeah. His siblings are causing him trouble. That's right. Right. So I think he's kind of been in a mode of... We haven't seen a ton of Baez in a while if we... Kalul is gone, so it says in in this book, too. It's hard to know exactly. I mean, they don't say for sure, but it's like, oh, the temple's gone. (laughs) People are fleeing to Gaska. But... Yeah, something it, happened with Pharaoh. Some, oh, we must imagine if we're something happened with yeah. Pharaoh. We must we can inf- inf- deduce, right. I guess. I mean, she'd be pretty old now by this point. Um, well, she, I mean, she's supernatural at this point. With yeah, uh, well, I'm true. just thinking. There's um, I, I think it's in one of the standalones. There's a reference to like a woman uh, getting her vengeance in the south. Yeah. And now Gurkle is a mess. So I think mm. for me, that's where I infer. I'm I'm not operating from any sort of like, a like second. Yeah, book I, I'm not spoiling it. Yeah, no, no, I'm not spoiling anything or anything. I'm I'm just in, trying to infer from standalone stuff. And, right. Right. Yeah. It. Yes. All this stuff kind of reminds me of a quote. I almost. Uh, I almost skipped over. Uh, from Glockta. Like Glockta's still coming in. With these great lines, and it's it's um it's pretty incredible. I, I, I love old Glockto. What can I say? The you because you were in his head for so long. When you see him like watching Savine fight, you know what he's kind of going through. And when he says like "Don't trust the Magi" and all this stuff, but there's a line that he says that kind of stuck with me. It's very Abercrombie, and he goes, "The goal of government, you see," and the Archlector prodded at the air with his bony forefinger is to load the unhappiness onto those least able to make you suffer for it 
Oh She's like that is a jaded, jaded man. So do you think you know we ended our Glockta character profile with this kind of optimistic view of Glockta as someone who did want to try to make some good out of his position in the union, and so did just all. It does leave you wondering if really any of that was able to be accomplished. It feels like the union's in a worse place. A worse place than we left it off in at the end of the first law trilogy. So it is, it is sad to see Glockta becoming. It seems like even more jaded in his old age here. Yeah, that's true. It's. I always think you know Glockta clearly hates everything that he does. <laughs> Why do I do this? Is the question he always used to ask himself. Which we don't get now because we're not in his we POV. Get the sense it's probably but he's still asking in his internal model. Yeah. So the fact that he's talking about like unloading all the suffering on the most vulnerable people uh, is this idea of like, look, this is what you have to do, otherwise we'd all be dead. <laughs> it's just how this works. But I do think there's those glimmers of hope, and that's why when you see him with Savine, you you. You feel a little good about that because you can tell that he does care about her and he does care about Artie. Didn't he say like marrying your mother was like one of the best things ever done or something like that? Didn't he say that? Yeah, he does have a. I just dropped all my well, my Abercrombie books. I hope that doesn't. (laughs) One of my many Abercrombie books. (laughs) (laughs) I've got multiple copies of these books. Yeah, there's only how many books are there? Uh, Seven, and you have like nine books. Well, don't forget that I also have the Shattered Sea trilogy. Oh, of um, course. If we're talking Abercrombie books, the ever underestimated. Yeah, but but you have book. what? You have eight. I do. You have eight First I, Law World books, and there's only seven that exist. <laughs> well, I have the original trilogy. I ended up with multiple copies of every book <laughs> for uh, reasons I won't get into, and then uh, a little hatred. I got a second copy because I found an autograph copy just in my mm-hmm. local bookstore. And I was like, I have to get this. It's yeah. Joe wrote in it. Yeah. So I was like, so anyway, not to, we're, we're digressing. I don't want to do Leo dirty here, Charles. I, and I want to talk about the actual scene of the, the circle. I mean, it's that's a great incredible scene. Yeah scene let's do it's it just exhilarating i know when i was first reading it i try to put myself back in my uh, this is my third a little hatred read charles wow and, i didn't realize you had already read it twice <laughs> yeah so the the scene when i was first reading it was absolutely exhilarating for me because you actually have no idea it feels like who is going to win or at least that was where i was i was like i actually have no idea who's going to win here and uh, it was uh, i've been rereading the book so much up to that point that to have this moment where two big characters are fighting for with life and death stakes i yeah i i just found it really exciting and the (laughs) it's very almost mountain versus the viper which i'm sure game of thrones fans that are listening will pick up on that i guess i don't want to get too deep into what how i'm drawing that connection because i want to spoil game of thrones in case folks haven't heard it but that that is what that this fight reminds me of yes uh, yes some ways i get what you're saying i know where you're at i agree i thought the same thing 
I did. And what, look, even at the very beginning of the first Law trilogy, Abercrombie always had a really good sense of stakes in a fight. Sometimes two people enter a fight in a fantasy book and you're like, there's no way the main character is going to lose. Like, Harry Potter's not going to get killed by Voldemort right now. I don't believe it for a second. (laughs) But when you have Stour and Leo in the circle together, you're like, anything's possible like yes rika had the vision that leo would rika yeah i i didn't read the listen to the audiobook for this one so you can tell i'm suffering uh Mm. i don't know why i denied myself stephen pacey's greatness for that one but i'm back to it now for the next book but anyway anyway so it was um the issue was like yeah she had that vision but even then it's like that could mean anything like abercrombie doesn't care Mm. about prophetic visions usually so it's like i i really didn't know and it made sense that he would lose and you get that back and forth i my money was on leo to win like the whole time and he did but Mm. it didn't make it any less exciting and the way he won it wasn't like i want to say the word cheap it wasn't like a cop-out it was like rika really could rika really could um use her long eye to see the slash and she yelled it out and you know it was it was foreshadowed it was foreshadowed because she has that moment with the arrow yeah she she could see the army advance she could see calder's army advance from the flank yeah oh i'm even thinking when she literally the arrow's coming and she can see like who made it and she can see where it would end up and she could she even see like rotting away so I thought that was good foreshadow. Of course, she has the moment in the battle as well. but Where she sees a guy walking up and looking weapon. up, and then that yeah. person comes later and does... Like, the nail. Control. Yeah, the nail. That's the right. Nail I was going to say it was like white something, but no, it was the nail. <laughs> it was the nail. Yeah. Uh, so, and, yeah, that was great. I love that. And I also love, you know, Logan versus the Feared was another great fight in the circle moment. He can write action and battle scenes and stakes super well it's like don't like yes we all love his grim darkiness his subversions his character work but we cannot discount abercrombie for his action scenes and his you know stakes yeah well said charles it's i mean it's one of the first things i pick up on i think reading the the blade itself it's like right off the bat with a a fight scene and Mm -hmm. he, he grounds you in action so well and the little hatred certainly i i think ramps it up even more and all the battles are incredibly well depicted i think he went a little bit more like epic and less slipping around and yes that yes. kind of way because he was big on and yeah in the first law trilogy the original he was big on this like how messy fighting yeah logan would like trip and fall on his ass and yelp yeah. out in pain and stuff like it gets kind of silly yeah yeah here he went he went in a little bit more he never loses the grittiness of fighting right or the realism of it but he went more epic and less chaotic i think with the way that he depicts these fights and a little hatred depending on the perspective in Rika's perspective during the fight, it's like, what is going on? And Clover kind of has his own <laughs> way of viewing fighting. But um, yeah, Ch- Charles, I'm realizing we're like an hour in, and we've only talked about. <laughs> we got a lot of characters. of characters. We got 
Orso, Savine, uh, we got Leo. Leo. Those are arguably the big, the biggest ones. There's still Ricka, like Ricka. is another big one, and then you have uh, Vic, Gunner, and Clover, which you could do those pretty quickly. But can we do all of them in thirty minutes? Like that's uh, the question here. I'd be doing them dirty. I would be doing them dirty, and there's still a lot to talk about beyond characters as well. There's still like. We touched on setting a little bit, but there's so many interesting themes that go along in this book beyond just what's going on with the character arcs that I think would be worth talking through and talking about and talking about what happened with this like workforce rebellion and how that like where he's drawing from history and Mm. like there's all those influences I think we could talk about as well. And yeah, uh, are, are you suggesting that we stop here? Like, what's the? I'm yeah, because I'm just thinking. I don't want to do. I want to do this book dirty, and maybe we do this as our our part one is basically discussing Orso, Savine, and uh, and Leo mm-hmm. with whatever digressions we had, and then see if then our we could do a little hatred part two that discusses get into more plot and setting and things like that as well as making sure we discuss Ricka, Gunner, Clover, Vic and, Clover. and Vic mm-hmm. in, and really give them their due because all those characters are so great. I, I don't want to try to fit them into 30 minutes or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying like it's we'll, we'll do a part two. I guess the question is, knowing okay. that we're going to do a part two, are we going to now? And this is really fascinating content, guys. I'm sure you're at the edge of your seats. Are Logistics. we Are we going to call it here? Are we going to try and squeeze in another character? Are we calling it a day? Let's get it. Do you think we could do one more character? Probably we couldn't do Ricka. Probably there's too much. To yeah, say I think we can get. Her, so. You want to just do? Um, like, you want to do Gunner maybe? Be- yeah, because we touched on Savine a bit. Um, yeah, or or maybe Clover. I don't know. Because Gunner. Let's go Gunner. Okay, we'll go Gunner. Okay. Uh, so Gunner, guys. Wow, this character comes out of the gate strong he's a ladderman and he's done it four times which is like Mm. an insane thing to do so you know he's a hard guy and the thing about gunner that strikes me is he again there's this thing that we've seen a few times with abercrombie but with gunner it's just represented a little bit more differently where here's someone who loves violence and loves to hurt people but also has a family that he loves and wants to be with and is trying to put all of that behind him. But for some reason, he's such a good, useful fighter and trouble always finds him. And he keeps going down that path no matter what good he tries to do. And the spectacles were an interesting touch as well. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's So Gunner is someone who... Abercrombie's done a lot of characters like this, as you, you're getting out there, Charles. And right away, I found myself thinking about all those 
characters and Logan Ninefingers is probably the one that first comes to mind as a character who's trying to put the this warriors past behind them and just settle down and have an easier life and gunner though is unique in a lot of ways the first thing that sticks out is he's a family man and yes i don't think that abercrombie's ever really done this one with a a true family man i could be wrong there and or a family person like i could be Hmm. maybe you can think of someone but if not i'll just keep going with this yeah yeah, uh, and he has very good reason outside of himself to change who he is and he's got a loving wife he's got a wonderful whip smart daughter and they really really care about him and Right away, though, we see him. He's just fought so hard for the Union. Right. And he comes back to have everything. He's really, I would think, trying to have this simple farm life. And meanwhile, all of it's been taken from him because of, like, taxes, basically. And people taking his land to have more power than him. And he gets to be the face of this disenfranchised every man in the union. And I think it's it's really interesting with all the rebellion going on to get to be grounded in the perspective of someone who's actually facing all of these like awful experiences that they're going through and tr- genuinely trying his best. You really empathize with Gunner, mm-hmm. I think. I agree completely, and I think it's very calculated by Joe to make this guy a family man and every man kind of person, jaded member of the common folk, because a huge theme in this book is just about civil liberties and workers' rights and yeah. like how progressions in technology and booms in the economy just continue to oppress most people. And that people are actually being treated worse than they were before amidst all this innovation and revolution going on from an industrial standpoint. So to have someone who fought for his country and is now like kind of traumatized by it, who just wants to live a simple life, and the fact mm-hmm. that he can't do that and the fact that he can't escape violence, I think is Abercrombie's further exploration of like this is more of the common man's perspective because leo Orso, savine they're all like royalty one percenters so to have a character uh a character like this one it's super fascinating because uh poor gunner he he never had any of that and he's just trying to survive and people just come to him and it's like this land is ours now we're like building a mill here and he just beats them up and and kills them. He kills one. Yeah, he, yeah. he kills them. And then but it's, not the person who's actually taking his land, just another person who's... A grunt, basically, I mean, pro- yeah. Yeah, a grunt, yeah. And that's this, again, this idea... Because there's another theme going on here that's kind of explained by the judge, which happens mm. during the whole overthrowing thing, where they yeah. do, like, the mock court 
and it's like, um, you don't have a, I reject this court, I, I denounce it. And then the judge is like, we have the authority of the fist. We have the authority of sharpened metal. We have the authority of force, you blubbering uh, C word, uh, which is the only real authority there is. And I think that's part of uh, Gunner's character. He's more than capable of being violent and beating people in a fight, but he's incredibly powerless. So it kind of juxtaposes the judge's idea of like, we have the power of the fist. And it's like, yeah, well, that only gets you so far and it it doesn't solve your problems. It, it's not true resolution. It's just scores on scores on scores. And I think by having Gunner grounded by an like a loving wife and child, which I do want to give shout out to family man Bethod. Okay, like he did have a loving wife and kids. Calder also wife and kids. They're both family men. Um, Logan took a stab at it, but I wouldn't call him well, a family I'm, man. Yeah, <laughs> I'm saying neither Bethod nor Calder is really a straightforward play of the person trying to put the really violent path behind that Bethod's interesting is also not a point of view character in anything except sharpens except sharpen. <laughs> true true I knew you're gonna so yes yes Charles you are correct he is a point of view in sharpens that being said no it's very different I think when I, I think it's like shivers is an example of a person who in in the hero or sorry not in the heroes uh, in best serve cold that is shivers or completely is trying to put a violent past behind him and start new, but he doesn't have a family right, depending right. on him. And of course, Logan, yeah, did he try it? Yeah, but, but the kids were more of like, yeah, the kids were more of like an idea a, backstory. Yeah, and like something to chase after too. In Red Country, he was supposedly oh, a family man, and that you know he was, which he is. But it just more pointed out how inappropriate yeah. he was there and that he had to move on, which made him a coward also. So, um, right. But this like he's at a different stage. But yeah. that's a good point that Logan as Lamb does get mm-hmm. sort of some family man elements, but. It's, it's it only goes to highlight how Lamb right. is very obviously not a exactly. family man, even when he's pretending to be. He's not. Right. And whereas Gunner is wholly and truly a family man. There's an important right. distinction there. Like Lamb is trying to have a family dynamic like Gunner actually has. And that is what grounds his character and also the fact that they're just totally powerless, even though he can well said. beat up anybody. And he's still completely powerless and it's just another sign of the times changing where it's not like whoever's the most dangerous within arm's reach is is king here there's all these other systematic things going on as a result of this industrial boom that keeps people like gunner behind and it's only when they were cherry-picked by savine that they got to live a second life but even then you're not really sure how much better off gunner is i mean he's obviously now has money so they're happy but his story ends just kind of like he's been marked as someone who is like a grunt who can hurt people and he's being used for that purpose and he's lying to his family now so that's the kind of where his arc ends and you don't you're not i'm not quite sure how to feel about him it's like 
this at some part you have to be realistic about these things <laughs> in the other part we're entering a refined age you know you, you don't want to be doing that to your family right i feel like gunner <laughs> it doesn't feel like he makes as many excuses for himself as logan no he does not and he's very honest trilogy. he goes he's right more, to his wife yeah. and is like I beat that dude up <laughs> like, and she's right. like it's okay it's okay we'll get through it <laughs> very healthy relationship they have yeah as healthy a relationship as you can have with someone like gunner yeah. i feel like someone as heavily I mean, you traumatized are trying to, yeah. yeah right they're great communicators i'll say that just, they are yes and she is unconditionally supportive yeah, <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> it's like, how did he end up with her she yeah somehow puts up with i mean you can tell he's well-meaning Gunner, yes. and i do yes. like him it's just yeah when it's violent times and you're a person who everyone looks at and immediately sees as someone who can contribute through violence you are it's just really really hard to get out of it and he he makes a genuine effort at it then there's that like horrific scene you know well written but uh, horrifying i guess uh scene with the child getting burned up and in the chimney yeah, just, yeah 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 and you see how gunner gets completely disillusioned after everything he's been through so just a good yeah an interesting face on the yeah the disenfranchisement the disillusion the frustration of being a common person uh, an interesting character with these contradictions of being a family man and being actually he does like violence you can tell like it's in some way it's when he feels most natural it's he's like instinctual for him. He's yeah. always clutching his fists or realizing his right. fists are clutched. He's he's instinctually, spiritually a, a warrior. So the fact that he's got to right. like keep it in check for his family and for like conforming with society is kind of an interesting thing. He saves Savine. He saves Takes Savine. Her in. He does. He does. Yeah. Not knowing who she is. Just to, to right. I'm, but I, I, his daughter the whole time knew Lydia or May. Yeah, I have Lydia and May. One's one, one's the other. And um, yeah, the fact that um, he's just kind of going along with it, just to be supportive, is kind of a stand-up thing to do. Uh, he just got to look out. He's got a bit of a temper to him, and uh, yeah. he's capable of violence. And this book basically ends with him realizing that he's hired muscle. And we'll see where that gets him in the next book. Yes, we will, Charles. But we can't go on to the next book yet, guys. We cannot go into the trouble with peace because we are going to have a part two of A Little Hatred. We're going to pick up where we left off here today. I know all you Ricka fans are upset but don't worry it's coming okay all you clover fans Use out there your long eye i will to see say into the future like with uh, that rick episode coming yes that long eye vision i see it i can like see the fade yeah. of us talking about it and it's just i'm gonna have time until it happens and clover oh my god Clo- the, clover's clover. end 
the end of this book with Clover. Oh my god! Flipping, shocking, and incredible. <laughs> so, like, yes, two and it of happens, my favorite like, moments right, in the whole book. Right at the same time as Jazal's death, and then yeah. the whole thing with Scale, and and then um, wonderful. I'm like, I can't, I can't handle all this. And, <laughs> yeah, and wonderful. We got to know well. We'll get into it more. But yeah, we got to know well in the heroes. Yes, it's just Abercrombie and in the, does such and a And in the job. short stories and the sharp ends, we got to look, even learn even more about wonderful. And, right. True. And true. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that scene is crazy, shocking, shocking. And we are right. going to share all our feelings on that so don't worry guys it's all coming and then there's all kinds of industrial revolutionary themes that we're going to be going pouring over and just talking about abercrombie's writing and maybe even doing a little comparison to um uh the blade itself is i think there's some interesting uh things happening here and uh but for now guys we are going to call it a day and we will uh, see you next time, right, Dylan? Is there anything else we need to say before we play that sweet, sweet outro music? I think it's time to get that sweet, sweet outro music pumping, Charles. Okay. Thank you, everybody, for listening to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. This has been your co-hosts, Charles and Dylan. If you like what you heard today, that is most definitely us, and you want to support the show, you want to support us, Charles and Dylan, then reach out to us us. over on social media (laughs) at the FDF Podcast with the number one at the end on Twitter and at FDF Podcast on Instagram. And uh, be sure to drop a follow, leave some comments. We like to reply to people's comments and tags and things. Yeah. So come on over. Comment on the episode announcement. Um, Ooh, that's, that's a good a great one. place to, yeah, to get yeah. conversations started on this episode. Very well said. I feel like we just throw them onto Twitter. It's like, you got yeah let's, let's get that conversation going yeah get, let's get the conversation going there's an episode We're... announcement out now on our twitter page guys go find it drop a comment let us Hope know what out. you think it Hope will it, it will be at some point today and if it's not then you can reach out to dylan at dylan r marsh and complain <laughs> at him directly complain. on twitter but <laughs> yes. uh until then guys uh, if you like what you heard and you uh dylan i have a question for you yeah don't <laughs> <laughs> if, if the listeners like what they heard We've and they just so happen to be listening on Apple Podcasts, mm. uh, and uh, what, what what can they do? <laughs> Toss five stars to our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you should find that Friends Talking Fantasy page on the Apple Podcast app. You want to click the Friends Talking Fantasy page. Then scroll down past all those episodes until you start seeing stars. Uh, Once you're seeing stars, the optimal number of stars to click in order to support the show would be five of them. If you've got a little bit of extra time, the writing review is extremely helpful for a podcast like ours. But just listening is more than enough. Thank you so much for doing that. Thank you all so, so much for listening. That alone, we are eternally grateful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And as always, go forth and conquer, friends.